trust you've all received a handout tonight, and we are going to continue with our study of First Thessalonians. Last week we did an introductory overview. Tonight uh, we begin by looking at the first chapter of the book of First Thessalonians. I have the first section of Thessalonians is, is introduced by a great many introductory remarks. It's like an onion with many layers. But the theme is that Paul is thankful to God for the Thessalonians' belief in and commitment to the gospel of Christ. That certainly comes shining through in this first and second chapter. The key verses are 1 Thessalonians 1-2 and 2-13. 1 Thessalonians 1-2 says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 2-13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So uh, Paul is thankful to God for the faith and the commitment of the Thessalonian believers. So the question obviously comes next, why is Paul thankful to God for the Thessalonian believers for their belief and a commitment to the gospel of Christ? Why isn't he just thankful to them? Why doesn't he just say, I really appreciate your faith and your commitment to Christ and you are to be commended and I speak highly of you, etc., etc.? Well, Paul is thankful to God for the Thessalonians' belief and commitment to the gospel, for Paul knows their belief is a result of God's love for them and having chosen them to salvation. First Thessalonians 1.4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And so that's the reason that he's thankful to God. Paul is absolutely convinced that the Thessalonian believers are part of the elect. It says, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. It's not that he hopes that they are chosen or that he thinks they might be chosen but he talks about the fact that he knows he's convinced that they are chosen of God. So what is it that convinced Paul that the Thessalonians were part of the elect? And uh, as we unpack that the obvious application is going to be how can we know when someone else <coughs> is a part of God's elect? Well, first, Paul is convinced that the Thessalonians are part of the elect because he sees the power of God at work in their lives. Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit. When he says only in word, he's, he's saying that you didn't just receive what we spoke to you and, and that you heard it, but when he shared the gospel with them, the power of God accompanied that gospel, which is really why anyone comes to a true saving knowledge of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, but that faith which is produced is produced by the power of God. It's God's agency. God is at work through the Holy Spirit enabling 
individuals to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul is convinced that the Thessalonians are part of the elect because of the manner in which Paul presented the gospel to them. The end of half of verse 5. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So he knows for two reasons. The first is because of the power of God that was at work when the gospel was presented, and then secondly, because of the manner in which he presented that gospel. And what he did was rely solely on the power of God and not human trickery in bringing them to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. And that is going to be developed in much greater length in chapter 2. We'll look at that next week. Therefore, because of the way in which he presented the gospel, that he didn't rely on human tricks or manipulation to produce faith in them. Therefore, their faith was a result of the power of God and not mere human manipulation. It's akin to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul purposefully, purposefully relied on the power of God to bring people to faith rather than trickery or manipulation. For he wanted their faith to be not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And when he talks about faith being in the wisdom of men, he's talking about faith that is produced by men's wisdom. A faith that is a result of human pressure or trickery, deceit, emotionalism. You know, there are a lot of different ways that you can coerce someone in making a response. In fact, uh, you, uh, if you've sat through some different altar calls, you will know that the uh, speaker will sometimes go to great lengths to try to create a response in the hearers that are hearing the gospel. Uh, one of the things that they may do, for example, is, is to say, Perhaps you are uh, embarrassed to come forward. Uh, may someone close to you encourage you to come forward. Walk down the aisle together. Anything to make it easier. Anything to make it more palatable. Anything to try to get somebody to make a decision. And the thought is, if you can get them to make a decision, well, then they're saved. But we find that there is true salvation 
which is a result of the power of God, and there's a false salvation that is engendered by the efforts, the human efforts of the person who is presenting that gospel. So Paul is convinced that their faith is real because he didn't rely on those human efforts in order to get a response, but he was relying solely on the power of God to bring them to a place of conviction and faith and trust. So those are the two reasons that he knows that their faith is genuine and real. That's a summary of what he is about to say. The first element that their faith is seen in the power of God is now going to be developed the rest of chapter 1. The second element that their faith did not rest in the power of man is going to be developed in chapter 2. So the rest of tonight, we're just looking at this first element, the power of God displayed. So bottom of page 2. What was it about the Thessalonians that convinced Paul that their commitment to the gospel was genuine? Well, the gospel had a powerful effect upon the Thessalonians. So the power at work was that which was produced in the Thessalonians. And again, we have this kind of summary statement. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, remembering before our God and Father, and now he's going to talk about three ways in which God's power was displayed. It produced your work of faith. Your work of faith. That is works that were produced as a result of faith. James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but not, does not have works, can faith save him? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So this man-produced faith isn't going to bring about meaningful changes in the life of the one who places their faith in the gospel. But the power of God that is at work actually brings about changes in the lives of an individual. A person who comes to faith is born again. That very terminology talks about a new beginning. It talks about a change that is transforming them. They are so different that in the New Testament, oftentimes they take on a new name. So a Simon becomes a Peter, a uh, Saul becomes a Paul. They are transformed. Secondly, the Thessalonians' love produced by the gospel resulted in their arduous and toilsome commitment to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 Remembering before God and Father your work of faith and now this, your labor of love. That this love produced labor. And this word is for toilsome, arduous, difficult work. They were ready to put their nose to the grindstone. They were ready to make incredible commitment because they now loved God and loved God because of the gospel. And then thirdly, the Thessalonians' 
hope, that is confident assurance that all that the gospel promises will come to pass, resulted in an unshakable commitment to Christ. Verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. So this hope resulted in steadfastness, that they would not be shaken, they would not be moved. Persecution and other outside influences were not going to cause them to give up their faith, for their faith was a result of this power of God. So he says in verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now he said that that was a summary statement for in the rest of the chapter, he's going to unpack those three elements. That is their uh, work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Now he's going to show us that power at work and, and what he means by those terms. First Thessalonians 1.5 Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The Thessalonians are living proof of God's power at work in them and in producing faith and commitment to the gospel of Christ. So now notice how these three things are developed. First, the power of God is displayed in the Thessalonians' response of faith in the gospel because they received joyfully, despite the adversity that was introduced, excuse me, associated with their commitment to the gospel. Verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. This was all a the work of the Holy Spirit, for it was with joy of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that produced this joy. Why would they have joy in the midst of affliction? Why would they have joy as when they knew and came to experience troubles and hardships as a result of putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting him for their salvation, trusting in this gospel. Why would they have joy when it was causing them heartache and misery? Answer, it's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit had done in their lives. B, in embracing the word of God, Despite the hardships that accompanied it, they evidenced a faith like that of the Apostle Paul. Here is true faith. Here is genuine faith. Here's the real McCoy. Verse 6, and you became imitators of us. You were like us. That is suffering as a result of the gospel. Not only were they like Paul, but embracing the word of God, despite the hardships that accompanied it, they evidenced a faith like that of Christ himself. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You see, the Lord, in his commitment to 
God the Father in a desire to make the gospel available to all was willing to suffer and he suffered greatly. So that's what real faith is willing to do. That's what genuine faith does. Real, genuine faith has joy even in the midst of suffering as a result of the gospel. Why? Well, that's going to be unpacked in the weeks to come, so I'm not going to go beyond that, but to say that that is an example of what real saving faith is. If a person, because of the hardship that's associated with the gospel, falls away, then that isn't real faith. And you have the parable of the sower and the seed and, and why someone for a brief period of time might respond positively but end up and find out that they're really not converted. They aren't really born again. True, genuine faith has joy even in the midst of suffering for that faith. D, in embracing the word <laughs> that should be of God, despite the hardships that accompanied it, the evidence of faith that was an example and encouragement to others, verse 7, so that you became an example of all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded out from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Everyone has heard about the Thessalonians and their faith and commitment to Christ. E, this was the work that their faith had produced. So the summary statement in verse 3 was, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, the faith which the work produced. That work was this joy even in the midst of affliction. This work was a faith like that of Paul and of Christ. That work was a faith that was spoken of in regions roundabout as people marveled at the commitment of the Thessalonians. So Paul says, I know that you are a true child of God because of the faith, because of the work that your faith produced. Secondly, the power of God is displayed in the Thessalonians' response to the gospel because it rebutted, that should be resulted, I can't believe, okay. Uh, resulted, I, I didn't, rebutted didn't seem to make much sense, it doesn't, it should be, it should be, uh, what, what should it be? Resulted, yes, that's what it should be. Resulted in their complete rejection of their former beliefs and practices and to their toilsome commitment to Christ. The power of God is displayed in the Thessalonians' response to the gospel because it should be resulted in their complete rejection of their former beliefs and practices. Verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. Here is this repentance, a true, genuine conversion. We talk about conversion. 
That's a wonderful theological word that speaks about change. Change. We speak of repentance. Repentance is a sorrow for sin that results in a change of life. They turned to God from idols. They left the idols behind in order to serve God. Their faith was not syncretistic. It isn't that they added to their false worship elements of true worship. That was one of the issues that comes up time and time again in the book of Kings, whether it be first or second Kings, it's because so often the Israelite religion was mixed with Baal worship and elements of, of uh, true worship. But Jesus, of course, taught us that worship must be in spirit and in truth. And so they repented. There was this change of life that was produced by the power of God so that they served, excuse me, they turned from idols to God. And see, this was the labor, uh, excuse me, B, the power of God is displayed in the Thessalonians' response to the believer because it resulted in their toilsome commitment to Christ to serve the Lord, excuse me, to serve the living and true God. This was the labor that their love of God produced. You see, here is this development of that thought. What did that labor of God look like? Well, it manifested itself in turning from idols to God and in turning to God to serve the living and true God, to commit themselves wholly to him and to his cause. That's why their faith was spoken of in the regions round about, for it produced this service for God, this labor of love. And thirdly, the power of God is displayed in the Thessalonians' response to the gospel because it resulted in their patient endurance for all the gospel promises to be fulfilled. Let me just give you an insight into how this happens. I must have, I must have spelled resulted wrong, and my spell checker gave me a choice of rebutted when they thought that that's what it meant. A lot of times when I'm working on my handouts, I take my glasses off because my eyes get tired. And I assumed that what they were suggesting was the right spelling, and what it was suggesting was a whole different word. But uh, once it found it, it did it everywhere. So anyway, that's how these things happen, and I apologize now it makes this really uh, frustrating. But let me say it again. The power of God is displayed in the Thessalonians' response to the gospel because uh, it resulted in their patient endurance for all the gospel promises to be fulfilled. The Thessalonians were confidently expecting and thus anticipating the fulfillment of all the gospel promises, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. This word to, to wait speaks of this expectation, this anticipation. 
They were ready to endure. They were ready to suffer. They were ready to maintain this faith for the long haul. They were hanging in there. They believed that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. They believed that things were going to get better. They were anticipating this time in which the Lord returns and all will be made well. B, the Thessalonians were anticipating the fulfillment of all the gospel promises when the Lord Jesus Christ returned and to wait for his son from heaven. So they believed that, that Christ died and rose again, which is the next point. The Thessalonians were basing their expectation of the fulfillment of all the gospel promises on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. They believed that Jesus Christ paid for the penalty of sins, that he rose from again, that he ascended into heaven, and he was coming again. In believing that, they hung in there. Believing that, they endured. Believing that, they were waiting with an anticipation. D, the Thessalonians were expecting that the gospel promises would result in their having complete peace with God. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They believed that, that they were not experiencing God's wrath. They believed that they were loved of God, even though they were going through all these hardships and difficulties. They weren't saying, why did this happen to me? They understood. They understood that that's what was associated with the gospel. For the gospel they heard was not sugar-coated because Paul didn't withhold the truth from them. He told them what it would be like when they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They entered into their commitment to Christ with eyes wide open. And they believed that God would make all things right. So the conclusion, A, we cannot have any way of knowing who is part of the elect prior to his or her conversion. Let me say that again. We cannot have any way of knowing who is part of the elect prior to their conversion. People don't walk around with ease in their forehead. But what's important for us to keep in mind is that, that there are no behaviors prior to one's conversion that will demonstrate whether or not they are part of the elect. Let me say that again. There are no behaviors, carte blanche, none. There are no behaviors prior to conversion that differentiates the elect from the non-elect. Number one, there is no one so evil that they are beyond the saving grace of God. So you can't look at this individual and say, wow, they are so wicked. There is no way that that person is ever going to come to faith. Or to say, that person has heard the gospel so many times their heart is obviously so hard and God is not at work in them, they are never going to come to faith. 
all referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Of all the people that one would be amazed that came to faith, it would be a, an apostle Paul who persecuted the church, who stood by and watched Stephen martyred, holding his garments and agreeing with the martyrdom of Stephen, of putting Christians to death. He was responsible for their murder, for the innocent deaths of many Christians. But Paul came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Don't write anyone off. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. And it's very appropriate for us to be praying. You know, sometimes I fear that the doctrine of election is misunderstood by people to say things that it doesn't say. And I've heard people say such crazy stuff as if God has chosen people for salvation, then why should we pray? The Apostle Paul gives us in the book of Romans, of which he gives us this great doctrine of election, and he says, my prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul prayed for the salvation of the lost, and so should we. And we should be willing to take the gospel to every single individual and not write anyone off. Number two, there is no one who is so good that they are without the need of the saving grace of God. There is no one who is so good that they do not need the saving grace of God. You know, we know some nice people. We know some loving people. We know some people that are generous and, and kind with their, their monies and their gifts and we know that there are people that do good, but they're not perfect. They are not without sin. And furthermore, that goodness does not necessarily ever result in their coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, all too often, that goodness prevents them from coming to Christ for they think they don't need to. They think they measure up. They think that they are not like others. It was one of the problems with the Pharisees. There is no way of knowing who the elect are before they are saved. Three, thus the gospel must be presented to all. B, we can have full assurance that we are part of God's elect as a result of our conversion. In 1 John 6.13, it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can be assured beyond the shadow of a doubt tonight that you're accepted by God. And the wonderful thing is not only can you know 
that you're accepted by God, but you can know that others are accepted by God. That's the whole first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. I thank my God knowing of your election, knowing that God has chosen you by seeing the fruit of the power of God at work in the lives of individuals. Their work of faith, their labor of love, their hope, their expectation, their trust that produces endurance. We can't know that we're saved because we raise a hand. We can't know that we're saved because we walk down an aisle. We can't even know that we're saved because we pray a prayer. The way we know that we are saved is seeing the power of God at work in our lives. The transformation that he brings, this love for him and a hatred for sin and a desire to live our lives to bring honor and glory to his name. The more we see God's power at work, the more assurance that we can have. And so Paul is delighted as he hears about the Thessalonians or produces assurance in his own heart and mind that their salvation is genuine, their faith is real. And then again, because of the way that he presented the gospel to them, that comes next week. See, so the assurance that we have that we are part of God's elect is the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The transformation that takes place in the life of the individual who has heard and believed the gospel as a result of the power of the Holy Spirit is the ultimate evidence that one belongs to God. E, such an assurance in our own lives as well in the lives of others should result in our giving great thanksgiving to God. We ought to be thankful tonight that God has saved us. It should bring incredible joy to our hearts and minds if we are sure that our children know the Lord. That we see the evidence. We see the fruit. We see God at work, for that is the impetus. That is our confidence. God is at work in them. So Philippians says, and we know, and we know that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it today of Christ. When the gospel is presented in such a way that the only explanation for a person's faith is that God enabled, God empowered, God opened their eyes, God gave them faith that we know that indeed God has given them that faith. So no wonder God is to be thanked. God is to be praised. God is to be glorified. So I thank God for saving me. I thank God for 
saving my daughters. I thank God for saving you. For God and God alone is to be praised. He's been good to us. He's chosen us. And we can be assured that we belong to him when we see that transformation of life that the gospel produces, for it always produces it in one who is truly saved. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your grace and goodness to us. Thank you that when we heard the gospel, it was accompanied with the power of God, that you opened our hearts and minds to believe and to receive. And it's produced this work of faith, this labor of love, this hope of salvation. Oh, Lord, I pray if there is anyone here tonight who is struggling with their their own assurance that you would help them to see how your spirit has been at work in their hearts and lives and how we have been transformed And many of us were saved as very, very young children. And so sometimes it's hard for us to see the transformation or we didn't live years of degradation and debauchery. But Lord, we can see that apart from your grace, we'd be a far different people. For we know the sinfulness of our own hearts. And we thank you, Lord, that you have kept us from so much, so much error, so much heartache, so much sin that we could easily have entered into. But God, you have preserved us. You have kept us. You have graced us. And Lord, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, I am quitting early, so I'd like to do an addendum what I said this morning, because I I want you to go away with the right thought, and that is, I talked about how so many people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ when they're young, and that there are relatively few who accept the Lord later in life. The world takes that statistic and thinks that the reason that people have faith is because we're naive, and because we have this childish um, indoctrination and uh, once we get to an age of maturity we, we don't fall for such gobbledygook well tonight we heard that the reason we believe is the power of God but I would submit to you the way for us to look at this is that God in his sovereignty and his goodness so often saves us when we are young to equip us for the work that he has for us to do. For he has saved us for good works. He saved us to serve him. So why wouldn't he save us when we are young? When our lives are before him to serve him. And secondly, to preserve and keep us. So that we don't have to have those testimonies of being caught up in all kinds of hideous acts. Not that we are any better than anyone else. The whole point is we are not better than anyone else. (laughs) 
It's the grace of God who gets a hold of us early. Thank God for the power of the gospel and his electing grace. Amen. We are dismissed.